This episode is brought to you by Core, the brand new non-custodial wallet that offers a seamless and secure experience on Avalanche. You'll hear more about Core later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. We got the weekly roundup coming at you. Santi is traveling right now, so we got two sub-ins. We got the A-list. We got the A-squad coming to the table today. We got Dan Smith and Sam Martin, two absolute D-gen research analysts uh, from BlockWorks. Dan, Sam, welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, appreciate it. Of course. First thing first, we're talking about OFAC and censorship issues. Um, last week, we talked about this on the roundup too. We saw the U.S. Treasury add tornado cash to the OFAC list, USDC freezing related tokens, Infura Alchemy, GitHub, uh, DeFi front ends, and other providers began to censor the addresses. Crypto Twitter and Discords became flooded with debates around censorship risk. Um, I think the first place that we sh should really start here is around validator censorship. So after the merge, um, just a reminder, after the merge, miners and mining pools get replaced by valid the validators who stake, right? And the most notable shift in power dynamics sits with the exchanges and the liquid staking pools that control a large percentage of staked ETH. And this has created this hot debate about ETH validators. Like, are they OFAC compliant? Um, essentially, like, are, are we bringing censorship to the Ethereum protocol base layer via these validators. So uh, Dan, Sam, I'm curious to get your guys' take on uh, on what you're seeing. What are, what are potential outcomes that are gonna happen here? Dan, can I can I pick on you first? Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's definitely, this is this is a hot topic, you know, Ethereum is kind of built around the premise of decentralization and DeFi is that, you know, the, the core tenant is uh, anybody can transact. And OFAC has come in and basically said, that's not true. And, <laughs> You can't really argue with OFAC if you're a centralized entity. You, those are they, they, they kind of make the rules that you have to play by, and uh, it's it's definitely kind of putting a, a weight on crypto, especially crypto Twitter. Uh, but I kind of have the opposite take here. You know, all of crypto Twitter gets obsessed about certain things, as we know, and that becomes the discussion around everything. But the way I see this playing out is kind of three different scenarios. So you have two on either end of the spectrum, and one in the middle. So case one is regulation comes in, OFAC says you can't transact with uh, these blacklisted addresses and that essentially kills DeFi, everything goes to zero. And in that scenario, you know, what are we gonna do about it? It's gonna be a, like a legal regulatory lawyer-based battle um, that probably puts a significant time, like a multi-year depression uh, onto the DeFi ecosystem. Uh, that puts extreme negative pressure on asset prices. And in that case, you know, why, why are we wasting time, like getting bogged down by this and not focusing on, you know, some of the exciting uh, developments that are occurring. Uh, so that's like this one bad scenario. Uh, in the great scenario, nothing ends up coming out of this. The regulations don't weigh on DeFi the way we think they're going to. And in that case, everything keeps chugging along as is. Again, why are we getting bogged down by this? Uh, and then you have this like scenario in the middle where there are the regulation, regulatory uh, OFAC rules come in and say, yeah, you, you can't do this. We're not going to let this happen. Uh, but instead of sending everything to zero, there's legitimate forks of Ethereum that become viable. So you have the proof of stake uh, Ethereum that is OFAC compliance. And, you know, this is probably would, where the large smart money would end up uh, thinking like hedge funds or uh new entities that are coming into this into this uh, institutional money basically 
And that's where they would go end up playing. And then you'd have another chain that's the same proof of stake, Ethereum, uh, that's not OFAC compliant. So the, I'm thinking this would be like a DGEN playground, basically. Uh, you know, you can't really be bringing legitimate money over, like smart money, institutional money over here because they have to comply by the rules. But there are centralized or decentralized entities uh, that don't, that believe that they don't have to play by these rules. So I, like that fork will exist. Um, but the question is who's transacting over there, what's happening, uh, what kind of protocols exist there. Uh, so you have two forks of, of proof of stake Ethereum, and then you also have the proof of work Ethereum still chugging along that fork. Uh, it would probably not be OFAC compliant as well. And you get into the situation of like, how, what does that look like? How does that, how does that operate? And so this is like this middle scenario that's probably the most likely outcome in my mind at, at, at this stage. Um, and proof of work Ethereum will be interesting because Circle has already come out and said they're not going to support it. I believe Tether has done the same. Uh, so if there's no fiat stable coins there, which makes sense because they're trying to be these regulated entities, they are very centralized, uh, so they do have to play by these OFAC rules, then there's no like st stable value on chain. Uh, so that essentially breaks all of DeFi, which currently runs around USDC and USDT. Uh, so that'll be interesting. I think you're going to see these uh, rise in protocol uh, algorithmic stable coins, like uh, you know, not necessarily things like fully algorithmic like Luna, but maybe there's some blend, uh, like some a frax approach that instead of holding USDC and Tether, they're holding maybe MIM or over collateralized stable coins. Again, these are we know these are harder to scale uh, as over collateralized stable coins just don't scale. Uh, but I think that's going to create this like situation. Uh, that kind of breeds around innovation. And I, I do think we're probably going to end up with, as it stands now, I, I believe we're, we're going to be ending up with multiple Ethereum forks that serve different purposes for different users. All right. I'm going to try my best to break that down, to try to summarize that. And then, Sam, I want to get your take on this. So basically three scenarios here. You've got picture spectrum on one end of the spectrum. Uh, OFAC comes down really, really, like really clamps down, tries to sh almost shut down a lot of DeFi activity. Uh, in that case, what can we really do? It becomes a massive years long legal battle. Uh, so almost in your opinion, you're like, why are we even worrying about that? That's not something that we can, that's, don't try to control the uncontrollables. On the other side of the spectrum, you're like, okay, OFAC maybe tries to sanction things like Tornado Cash, um, some like deep kind of privacy tools, but most of the other things are like fine. They kind of lay off and like, okay, DeFi keeps running as usual, but maybe there's a more likely scenario, which kind of sits in, in, in between these two scenarios, which is um, uh, if regulatory com regulatorily compliant validators have a big enough percentage of the stake, then blocks by non-censoring validators could be ignored, which would make the non-censoring validators unprofitable. And this would result in this, this fork uh, that would kind of separate the two validator sets. So you'd end up having two different proof of stake ETH chains uh, one would be like an OFAC compliant chain. One would be a uh, like a total DGEN chain that's not OFAC compliant. And then you would have a third chain, which is looks like we'll have this uh, continue with the, the, the proof of work ETH chain. When you extend this out and try to think about where the space goes from here, you'd have all, all the money would probably, most of the institutional capital would flow into the uh, proof of OFAC compliant proof of stake chain. The other two chains... I think the proof of work one ends up dying, but teach their own. Uh, the proof of stake, OFAC, uh, or like DGEN chain, non-OFAC compliant, that's maybe where you'd get a bunch of like experiments. You'd have to have like algo stables. Um, 
because Circle will not, uh, because USDC will not participate in that chain. So that's where you'd probably get a bunch of the DGen activity, and then maybe once they evolve past, you know, they they they, it's almost like a test net. It's like a new test net. Once they kind of realize, like, okay, this kind of DGen, once a once a project realizes that it works, they maybe move on to the the OFAC compliant proof of stake chain. Uh, Sam, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, the whole situation is just unfortunate. Like, I'm no OFAC expert, but I mean, I've just been really excited about the merge for a long time now. And uh, it's like a bullish catalyst, obviously. And it's unfortunate that it's being kind of overshadowed by by all this stuff. And I, I can't even imagine being like a retail investor and trying to understand all this and, and how it pans out. So I think that is a bearish slant on an otherwise bullish uh a bullish development with the merge. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just two two big parts of this equation, obviously. You've got probably 75% of the validator set, the, the node operators are Lido and then big centralized exchanges. So it's like, where where are they gonna choose uh, to, to validate? Are they gonna censor or are they not gonna censor? And then you've also got the stable coin issuers. That's a huge piece of the equation. Cause like Dan alluded to, you need a stable, you know, store of value to be able to trade back into in order to actually like facilitate like efficient activity. So yeah, we'll see where people choose uh, and where they stand on which side of the line. But uh, I saw Brian Armstrong tweeted the other day about uh, how he would, you know, seize the staking business if you had to support the, uh, the, um, the, the censored chain. Uh, I don't know if that's all talk. I mean, (laughs) you know, even like legally speaking, he should like be looking out for the best interest of like his, his shareholders. So I don't know how he'd even be allowed to do that, but that'll be interesting to watch uh, pan out. And I think Jeremy Allaire, the CEO and founder of Circle, hasn't hasn't said anything about it, at least not that I've seen. But you'd have to imagine they'd choose the uh, the OFAC compliant fork. Um, so it's going to be interesting yeah. to watch pan out, but I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, you you have like a fiduciary duty to your shareholders to do to follow the U.S. sanctions, obviously, but then you have a almost a, this inherent duty that doesn't doesn't really exist actually if you think about it in any other industry to like follow the decentralization and like follow the it's the crypto ethos right it's like the i don't know you don't want to just bend the knee basically and just recreate the traditional financial system so yeah I, sam i saw that same tweet it was 66 percent of the beacon chain validators um who is it lido coinbase kraken uh, who's this other one? Stake, uh, staked and Bitcoin Suisse make up over 65% of staked ETH, right? So if regulators come to them, they ask them to censor at the ETH protocol level with their validators. The big question becomes, A, do they comply and censor uh, at the protocol level? Or B, do they shut down their staking service and preserve network integrity and lose the revenue that they generate from the staking services, right? So so yeah, Brian said it's a hypothetical we we hopefully won't face, but if we did... Uh, we think we'd go with B, shut down the staking service and preserve network integrity. Uh, but he said there may be some better option, which is option C, a legal challenge. And that's what Dan's kind of talking about, which is like, look, who knows if they really come down, it's just going to end up in, with the lawyers. So Yeah, and, and government moves so slow that and it's it'll be super frustrating to go through that. And this is obviously an unprecedented battle. Uh, that would be occurring. So I can't imagine the the years that that would take to actually get a, a true resolution for either. So I'm, I'm curious why you think the proof of work chain will just die. Who's going to build on the proof of work chain? Fair point. But I think I think the interesting thing about this fork rather than like the Ethereum classic fork is there's so many protocols that are 
that exists now. Like when Ethereum Classic fork, there was the only thing that was built was essentially the DAO. And now you have hundreds of DeFi protocols that are st- like, if the blocks are being minted or blocks are being uh, mined, then you're still going to get these systems that are they're like organisms now. Like they're going to keep producing. Uh, so let's put in an example. So Curve emits CRV tokens with every new block, and that's going to still occur on the proof of work chain as long as new blocks are being mined. And so if Curve has any value at all, like even one cent, then these tokens will have value that people will be chasing after. So I feel like while you're totally, I totally agree that why would you build over there? If you're a new project, your, your market is exponentially smaller, most likely. Um, but it's just going to be like this weird degen playground again, that's, that's like these systems will still be operating and it's, it's like this massive experiment. It's like building in prod really. It, it'll be interesting. Like, let, let, here, let's let's think about it this way. Who who wants to keep a proof of work chain? I'd ask you that, Dan. Uh, miners, because if the, the miners. proof of work Ethereum has any value at all, then they can still generate a profit. Right. So the miners want to keep this chain going, but who? Where does the? Why does value accrue to ETH? And where does the? Why why does why do users do anything on ETH? It's because developers and builders build really cool projects. Uh, they are going to want to build everything on this new proof of stake chain, I would, I would assume. So I think that like, I mean, ETH, whatever you want to call it, like ETH1 will probably continue to exist because of support from the miners. Um, and I think like DeFi protocols and exchanges and devs are going to need to deal with that. Um, but I, f- I feel like that you're going to have these, yeah, almost like these black markets emerge. Uh, or like, yeah, you, you called it like these degen corners, probably like these like black markets will develop on on the proof of work chain where like, there's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe what 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 about this? What if there's a maybe maybe the NFT market really develops on ETH one because like, would you rather have? I, I actually am realizing as I speak say this out loud, I don't fully understand how it works. Like, will you have a crypto punk? Like, let's use punks for example. Will there be a punk on ETH on the ETH proof of work chain and on the ETH proof of stake chain? Yeah, yeah there will be. <laughs> Which makes it really interesting because technically the proof of work chain is is you know the original, but uh, right. So but, like like let's know, use punks. Do you want to do you want to own the 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 new punk that's been around for two weeks, or do you want to own the punk that's been around for five years? You want the one with social consensus, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. So I I, yeah. I will say though I think the the OFAC stuff does kind of make proof of work ETH more of an insurance policy. You know, like we we know that it works, and if you know, everything just hits the fan, then, you know, you could always migrate back to the proof of work chain. So I do think that the OFAC drama does provide ETH proof of work with a little bit more of a built-in insurance value. So I think it'll hold some value, but I agree. Social consensus around NFTs, you know, all the stablecoin issues, issuers are going to support proof of stake. Like that's where the value will be, but I do think there's a little bit of value left in ETH proof of work. Hmm. Do you guys remember the Bitcoin forks? You guys remember Bitcoin Cash and then Bitcoin SV, which was the fork of Bitcoin Cash. Ultimately, they just become these ghost lands. And it like, I don't know, that's I'm probably basing this off of uh, off of all, all of what happened just with Bitcoin and watching that. And like the fork seemed like such a massive distraction. But um, yeah, we'll see. Cool. Let's talk flash bots. Uh, controversy, this uh, kind of the OFAC controversy basically fled into the uh, Flashbot software. Uh, for those who don't know Flashbots. 
We're doing an app with them next week. It's going to be really, really good. You guys should listen to that. But Flashbots is the kind of de facto MEV software that is leveraged by, it's like 80 or 90% of miners today. Uh, it was reported that Flash the Flashbots RPC had the OFAC list hard-coded into the software, uh, meaning that non-compliant transactions would be disallowed at the client level. Uh, not not just on the front end, as we see with a lot of like DeFi protocols like Uniswap and Aave and things like that. Um, on Wednesday, Flashbots announced that they're open sourcing the MEV boost relayer. So rather than a single default, uh, what this does is it encourages competition. It reduces single points of failure. Huge move by the Flashbots team. Really, really love this move. Um, Dan, what do you uh, what do you think about this one? This is sort of the the justification for my thesis that you'll see a fork between proof of stake Ethereum for OFAC compliance and non OFAC compliance. I mean, this is a, a centralized entity that they, again, they, they have to be OFAC compliant. They don't really have an option here. Um, and I mean, I, this, you could argue that this is like a, a bullish catalyst for ETH because it's a path towards regulatory, regulatory compliance. Um, and protocols can be built on OFAC ETH that, like don't have to worry about this this issue like for example uniswap has been debating the fee swap for how long now and they're like turning it on now but i think there's some some back room uh thoughts with the the uniswaps labs team and they're like we really want to set up the foundation before we get this fee switch going or else this looks a lot like a security uh so i think you know kind of more on that end of things that having an OFAC compliant chain would probably get some favorable views from regulatory bodies. And I think that adds a lot of value there. Um, but again, you know, I don't think people, like people are acting super surprised that centralized entities are now becoming like acting, like kind of showing their true colors and be, being regulatory compliant, even though there was all the decentralization talk, but in reality, they, they really have no choice. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not by accident that Flashbots open source the relayer code so that way someone could, you know, fork it and essentially make a non-OFAC compliant one because they're just, you know, wherever they're located, they're bound by regulatory authorities to to comply, which makes sense. And they, they clearly stated, like, this is a work in progress, like, beware, like, like this, you know, is a, a code base that is definitely changing a lot more from now until the merge. And I think there was just a worry on whether other solutions would be available by the time the merge actually was completed. So they just wanted to get it out there. So people could start b building on it and making sure that there's a non-OFAC compliant alternative. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is a legendary move by Flashbots. I think this ends up setting a standard for the industry. I think what a lot of folks have done is basically followed what Uniswap did, which is they make the, um, uh, they make the front end, what did shoot? What did Uniswap do like a year ago? They made the front end compliant and then, but you can't touch the protocol. And then you basically race to, uh, exit to the community through a DAO and a foundation and things like that. I think a lot of folks have, have taken that playbook from Uniswap. Um, but I am hopeful that a lot of people take the Flashbots playbook. It'd be really interesting to see. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, I think it's a reminder that like a good reminder of just how centralized a lot of crypto still is. Um, Masari had this good tweet. Three major cloud providers are responsible for 69% of the 65% of Ethereum nodes hosted in data centers. Uh, of the estimated 95% of Solana nodes hosted in data centers, 72% are hosted with the same cloud provider as Ethereum. Dan, concerning? No? You don't really care about that? 
Decentralization is super important, and I really want that to be the end result. But people forget that you can't just start there. Like that decentral to me, decentralized something. Decentralization is something you work towards and end up at, rather than begin at and maintain. Um, and you know, perfect example of that is launching DeFi protocols. There's generally you know two to eight core devs say uh, that are building this product, and the community has input, but there's not that there's not like the community is the one building uh, the actual upgrades to the protocol, for example. And it's yeah, it's the race to decentralization. I think that people have understood that at the protocol level, but at the base layer that sometimes gets like over there's oversight at the base layer and, and people are just assume decentralization. Um, but yeah, I, I really see that an end goal that we have is a decentralized general purpose smart contract platform in Ethereum. Yeah, I've always just kind of thought of scalability, not just as like transaction throughput, but also like transaction throughput in, in you know, in con in conjunction with like the cost to validate. So like if, if you know, if, if we do get an OFAC compliant Ethereum, then it's like, I might as well just be using Solana. And like the entire Ethereum roadmap doesn't even make sense anymore because it's just, it, it's censored. So. So yeah, I don't know. I, I I really hope that we'll we'll be able to get past it, and I believe that we will because the the social consensus of the Ethereum community just everyone believes that we should have non censorship at the base layer. All right, folks, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche and Ava Labs. They have just dropped a new crypto wallet called Core. You're going to be hearing a lot about it over the coming months. You can now be one of the first to try it out. Here's the reason I'm excited to partner with them on Empire. Right now, crypto wallets and browser extensions, they feel clunky, they feel non-intuitive. That's why Ava Labs built Core. It's a free, non-custodial browser extension that gives Avalanche users a seamless and secure Web3 experience across the entire Avalanche ecosystem. Here are a few reasons to try Core. Here's what I'm experimenting with. Number one, Core has intuitive dashboards with a unified display for all of your NFT collections, all your crypto assets. You can execute asset swaps directly inside the wallet. It's a really nice experience. Uh, maybe you want to earn yield or borrow against your Bitcoin, uh, but you don't want to do it on one of those C5 platforms right now. Core's native bridging functionality makes it really easy to bridge your Bitcoin to Avalanche's robust DeFi ecosystem. Last but not least, Core makes on-ramping super easy. You can convert dollars to crypto right now using the MoonPay integration. Just takes a few clicks. Download Core today using the link in the show notes. It's really, really nice. Uh, if you are interested in the Avalanche ecosystem at all, you have to be using Core. Download Core using the link below. Now, let's get back to the show. Uh, Sam, you're writing a big piece on PseudoSwap. Yeah, when, when does that come out? Yeah, that should be coming out a week from today. Cool. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. PseudoSwap's like super, super interesting. Um, the first iteration of it was like an OTC service that just enabled users to, to swap NFTs with other users without any fees. But uh, last month they launched uh, an on-chain NFT AMM that basically lets users buy and sell NFTs in like a really gas efficient manner. And also like um, it requires less position management through like customizable bonding curves. So basically... Users can LP single-sided with NFTs or ETH to like um, uh, basically set like a buy order or like a sell order on an NFT or like, you know, so dollar cost averaging into NFTs or dollar cost averaging out of NFTs into ETH. 
Um, and then also you can provide liquidity on both sides and set the parameters of a customizable bonding curve, uh, which can be like linear where there's a delta. So let's say I have, you know, 10 NFTs and I set the delta at 0.1, then every time an NFT is bought or sold, the price either increases or decreases by 0.1 ETH. And that's really nice because if, if anyone's used OpenSea and they're trying to like adjust their listings to floor, like that's a lot of management. It can require a lot of gas to list all the NFTs individually, but then PseudoSwap lets you do it like kind of all in one go and automate the curve. You know, you've seen projects like NFTX try and do this, this same thing. Um, but the problem is, is there's a lot of friction and the, the NFTs end up getting fractionalized. Uh, and they're also using like an XY cave, XYK curve. So the slippage is just really, really bad. And it's exacerbated like with thin uh, pools. Like if there's only 10 ETH and 10 NFTs in the pool, then your slippage is going to be like over 10% even a perfectly balanced pool. Um, so the customizable bonding curve kind of makes the slippage constant for the buyers and sellers. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's pretty revolutionary in the terms of, uh, NFTs. It's definitely the financial financialization of them. You know, some people aren't super happy with it because it, it forgoes the, uh, the royalties that, uh, open sea traders and, uh, looks rare provide. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to watch it all pan out. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Sam. I think, or, I mean, <laughs> This, so I'm, I was never into NFTs in the beginning of crypto. I saw them, I paid attention to them, but trading them was just never something that, that got me going. Uh, I came into crypto from more of the finance side. So DeFi was super interesting, probably because it was something I understood a little bit more and probably more so because of how poorly the NFTs I did purchase performed. Uh, but uh, swap feels like a zero to one for me. Like, when I use the UI, it's obviously news and a little glitchy here and there, but like it, using it feels like a great experience. This is like, it's created a new mechanism uh, in NFTs and it's been pretty refreshing for me. And one thing that I find super interesting is I've seen projects using PseudoSwap to, to essentially create like a minting feature for their NFTs. So in the, in, without using PseudoSwap, uh, you know, the project would host a website that you'd you know, users would go on to connect your wallet and mint an NFT, which was a pretty sketchy experience for me. I don't, I really hate in, like connecting a hot wallet to random websites. Uh, but projects have been, instead of minting them out through this website to individual users, the project itself will mint the entire uh, supply of the NFTs and then put them into a pseudo swap pool where you don't, where users can then go and swap ETH for the NFTs. And so that allows the user to interface with one trusted website in PseudoSwap and still get this minting experience. Uh, and so a couple of different projects have been experimenting with this. And a lot of that has gone pretty well and pretty poorly, like we've seen it all over the map. Uh, but PseudoNots is a, a project that recently did this. Uh, and it was like a, a pretty interesting experience. And they had pretty great success. It, 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 they noted that it kind of like this style like reduced reveal volatility. So when the project reveals, you know, a lot of people have been trading NFTs on OpenSea know, know that when reveal happens, you're either getting a zero or a five X right there. But that wasn't really the case with this project. And it kind of remains to be seen if that's more of a project specific thing or if a lot of this had to do with the fact that uh, they used the pseudo swap as this minting feature. Mm. Uh, and yeah, no, I, 
I, I, I actually don't think I'm fully getting why Pseudoswap is so interesting. I'll be honest. Like you said, you got a zero to one moment. So I'm on Pseudoswap for anyone watching on YouTube. Uh, Dan, Sam, can you guys see my screen? Yeah, yeah so you yeah. can see this. Yeah. All right, so I'll pull up the best collection in crypto, crypto dick butts. Uh, 1D equals 1B. Uh, and we've got this. Like, it just looks kind of like a open sea with less with less acti- with less uh, with less stuff you can do. But what what am I missing here? Yeah. So if you scroll up to the top, you see how there's the uh, best offer. So, you know, let's say I need three grand for a car repair in real life. You can go into this pool and instantly sell that NFT for that best offer, which is really advantageous in itself. And then the offer TVL. Oh, so you've basically got a limit. You can do like limit orders on here. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's the, that's an example of someone um, providing basically uh, ETH at a certain buy price um, for this NFT collection. Hmm. Um, and I know that there's been a lot of arbitrage going on too between. Wait, wait, this is the offer for the entire collection. You're saying that's the amount of ETH that is in an like in a position to offer. So people in an offer at two point eight four eight probably have like a delta set up, and basically as you know this order gets filled, the next order will be lower and then lower and then lower. And so there's o- there's only two apes on this entire thing. So you have to. It says two, but I don't even see any here. So so like. Or let's say uh, let's say Azuki's. There's 30 Azuki's on here, so you have to go. You basically go to PseudoSwap and you list your you list your Azuki's on here directly. Like it's not like Gem. It's not like Gem, yeah, right? So- Where it'll pull in ever like it'll, like what 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 exists on Gem is basically the exact same stuff that exists on OpenSea. For PseudoSwap, you'd have to go list your stuff here directly. Yeah, you put it into a pool, mm. and then if someone selects your NFT that's in the pool and purchases it, then you know the price will increase based on that pool's parameters. So at six point five, if the delta on a linear curve is point two, then the next one's going to sell for six point seven. Interesting. I mean, you yeah. guys aren't alone in thinking this is really cool, right? If the Dune stats are right, PseudoSwap has sixteen percent of the market share versus OpenSea after less than one month of launching. Um, this was this guy Zero X Wangarian. Yeah, he tweeted: past twenty four hours, OpenSea did fourteen million in volume. Pseudo did two million in volume. Uh, about fifteen percent of the sh- uh, market share. As as he said, this is probably the most exciting application to hit the market in twenty twenty two, as traction is completely unincentivized. Dan, you agree with that take? I do. And there's more innovation that's yet to come for PseudoSwap. Right now, you can only pool NFTs alongside ETH. Uh, but in the future, you're going to be able to pool NFTs with other NFTs, and, as well as any ERC-20 token. So that's when things start to get way more in the weeds. Um, that creates a lot of new opportunities. And the, that's, a, again, another zero to one. So we don't really know what's to come out of that. But uh, yeah, I, I do agree with that take. PseudoSwap is a blast to use and it's been yeah. a fun experience so far. Yeah. It's probably not completely unincentivized though, right? There's there's probably a bunch of people who are just airdrop hunting, but that's yeah. exactly. Yeah. The Xmon token is a good reflection of that. There's links between the Xmon token and PseudoSwap. And if you pull up the Xmon chart, you'll see that people are definitely airdrop. Say, say that again with Xmon. I don't get that. Uh, there's like links that Xmon, the token is tied to PseudoSwap. And so like long, Xmon would probably get some conversion to a pseudo token. So Xmon holders would get a conversion to pseudo. I heard Owen say to the founder of, of PseudoSwap say that he took some inspiration from CowSwap for the airdrop design. So if anyone remembers that, that's a 
basically you want to trade some solid volume on on pseudoswap to get the airdrop so are you two both trading on pseudoswap yes sir. trading on pseudoswap <laughs> yeah for science nice what i right, let me for science yeah exactly for the research uh let me let me push back here why won't this you guys remember looks rare uh you guys remember looks um by the way this t-shirt was blockwork swag pre-looks coming out uh, the looks rare swag we I gave out that. at our offsite and then looks launched i was like well shit um so now everyone thinks I'm pumping looks, but uh, why, so why, why won't this just look, look like looks and just get faded? So I think Luxor was a, it will kind of had this issue where it was a, trying to essentially do the same thing as OpenSea. OpenSea is the giant, uh, hard to compete with that. You know, they had the, the revenue share, which was their diversification, I would say. But PseudoSwap is something different. Like if you have a super rare NFT where the, uh, this, uh, sorry, the, like the stats of the NFT actually matter, it's traits, sorry, attributes, um, then you're probably not going to want to just throw that in a pseudo pool where someone can click it at the floor price and buy it. But so that's kind of why I think the, that's, that's why like board ape holders aren't going to be posting their board apes into this, unless you have like a floor board ape, mm -hmm. then maybe you toss it in to pseudo swap, see what happens. But, um, yeah, so Sudafop's really for more like-priced NFTs, if that makes sense. Yeah, like land. It makes a lot of sense for like metaverse land because a lot of it, it's almost like fungible, non-fungible tokens. <laughs> what if you guys were the head of product at OpenSea, what would you do? And you see something like this launch, what would you do to compete with Pseudoswap? I would plug them in and use them as an aggregator. So that way you're not losing everything you know what i mean like didn't they acquire um was it gem gem yeah gem. yeah they gem. acquired gem so I, I assume that's kind of like why they acquired gem um but yeah i think that they should use gem to to plug into to pseudoswap to take advantage of the trading volume let me rephrase it for you do you uh give it give it 18 months is OpenSea the largest nft marketplace in the world i'm still gonna say yes because the if you go by volume, I think that these larger, like Board Ape sell for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars where what's selling on Tudoswap right now are like 0.02. And for the most part, of course, there's like the dick butts going for three ETH, uh, but most of them are like less than one ETH uh, NFTs. And right now it's still like, there's not any, it's mostly people just experimenting. I think real projects will get built and sold and hosted on Pseudoswap, but we are not there right now. Uh, and I still think that OpenSea is the giant that has such a dominant market share. Like a lot of people know what OpenSea is and have no idea about anything of crypto. And also with Pseudoswap, there is a, uh, a learning curve that you need to adapt to because it is, it's, it's incredibly complicated. It's not just like, oh, go in, click an NFT, place a bid, buy, buy NFT. Well, I want to sell an NFT. All I have to do is list it, pick a number of uh, the amount of ETH I want for it, and I can easily list it. It's super simple, super user-friendly. Uh, and I think PseudoSwap is probably more for crypto-native people that enjoy the experimentation. I would, take, I would take the other side of that, honestly, Dan. Like, I feel like most people in NFTs aren't really in it for the community or the, the creators. Like, people are just trying to make a quick buck. So I would say, I don't know if financialization of NFTs is a good thing, but I will say it's inevitable. Um, I think, you know, DGENs are going to DGEN. So I would take uh, OpenSea gets, gets replaced as the top volume marketplace in the next 18 months. By who, Sam? 
I don't want to. I don't want to stick my name on uh, on a bet. I'm not sure. I guess I'll go with right. pseudo because I'm bullish on it. Right <laughs> uh, all right, let's take the other side of pseudo. Let's talk about the other thing that's been uh, in the conversation with pseudo, which is that they are not. Uh, they do not. So pseudo swap, swap does not pay any royalties to creators on NFT trades, right? If you look at something like OpenSea, they pay on average like five percent to NFT issuers on secondary sales. They keep an extra like two and a half percent, I think, for themselves. Pseudo charges just, uh, I think it's like fifty bips on trades. Uh, and then those funds are sent to their treasury, not to creators. Um, the the obviously the low fees on top of the liquidity pool structure has become really attractive for NFT traders. But if you're a creator or you're an artist, uh, you probably feel a different way. Dan, thoughts on uh, royalties? Pseudo swap not not offering royalties. Yeah, the analysts had this debate the other day and royalties to creators was such a narrative for NFTs uh, during the bull run. And, you know, music NFTs were kind of spawned out of this royalty feature. But I I don't know. So Muni tweeted the other day that essentially, why wouldn't NFT projects keep a portion of the supply for themselves? And that becomes their royalties uh because if the NFTs do well, then the, the value of the NFTs that they keep would obviously increase as well. Uh, and that would kind of be your share or your profits as the creator. And then NFTs really just start looking like ERC-20 tokens. And is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I'm not sure. Uh, but that kind of bleeds directly into the whole argument about how Kobe was saying NFTs are essentially just altcoins with pictures which I wholeheartedly agree with, 99.9% of them are. Of course, there are like true innovations and there is real art that's being made, but that's that's just not what most NFTs are. And especially on Pseudoswap, there's like no real art or no real meaning there. It is just all coins with pictures. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing that Pseudoswap's doing that. I think you know, if you have the belief that royalty should go to creators, then you have the ability to use the ability to use uh, platforms that support that, like OpenSea. Kind of kills the narrative uh, that this like enforceable royalties on chain uh, is one of the best things about NFTs. So it's a good it's a good reminder that the uh, those royalties are not enforced on chain; they're enforced by the marketplace who who uh, uh, puts in the matching contract, or in this case, doesn't put the matching contract in. So. So you agree with, uh, you like Kobe's take? <laughs> I really do. I mean, yeah. that's just how I thought about NFTs the whole time. That's mostly why I never really touched them. I was focused on, you know, what are actual innovations happening in DeFi and why would I mess around with these dumb pictures, basically. Of course, you know, I've come around to it a bit. It is it is fun. But uh, yeah, I, I really do. I think they're just all coins with pictures that essentially are just ERC-20 tokens that that's, that's the Doge coin with the actual Doge on it. Feels like uh, the tw tw uh, in it for the community is the 2022 version of uh, 2018's in it for the tech. Let's, uh, Sam, any takes on this or you want to move past pseudo? Uh, no, I would agree with everything Dan said. Like, you know, keep a portion of the collection. You could even LP it to earn fees. Um, so yeah, just echo everything Dan said. Yeah. All right, we're going. We're pushing past uh, my realm of understanding here. We're going into the DGen corner of the episode. The I don't even know how to pronounce this thing, guys. Canto, Canto, uh, permissionless general purpose blockchain running the EVM. I, I'm not even going to try to read these notes that you guys put up. Dan or Sam, who's taking this, and why? Why is this important enough to get included in this week's roundup? 
I finally got my funds off Canto, and I haven't looked back since. So I'm going to hand this one to Dan. <laughs> uh, I, I can take I can take the lead here. Um, as, as Sam mentioned, uh, the bridging experience is a little sketchy. So full disclosure, this is the edges of crypto innovation. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, Jason, Canto is a permissionless general, general purpose blockchain uh, running the EVM, so the Ethereum virtual machine, and it uses Cosmos SDK. So a good comparison here would be Evmos. It's essentially a very similar model because Evmos is also running uh, the Cosmos SDK or built on the Cosmos SDK and uses Tendermint consensus for its proof of stake validation. Uh, so it's strong tech. Cosmos infrastructure is some of the best proof of stake infrastructure we have uh, today. And the whole value proposition around Canto is like free public infrastructure. Uh, so it's like core tenants, I would say, are liquidity as a free public good. Uh, and so to how it justifies this is there's a Canaconical DEX that has zero trading fees for uh, traders and LPs, which creates this strange scenario, right? Because if there's no trading fees, then LPs are earning nothing and therefore only exposing themselves to impermanent loss. Uh, so the way that that's mitigated is through liquidity mining incentives. Uh, and so as, as uh, mining rewards go to the LPs, then they kind of offset their impermanent loss and allows there to be liquid uh, liquidity at the base layer. But that that kind of gets into the whole Ponzi scheme vibes because the only thing keeping LPs there are liquidity incentives. And if that's the case, then what happens if the token doesn't continue to appreciate? Uh, so a little bit suspect on how that's going to play out. Um, but the, the, I think this is kind of just like a step one of like, let's get the chain launched. Let's get liquidity at the base la layer. And then let's build and innovate on top of that. And so backing up to like the whole broader view of what Canto is, it's free public infrastructure. So it has a free uh, Canaconical bridge, DEX and lending platform. Uh, and all of these have no, no fees associated with them and gas fees on Canto are like incredibly low, uh, like uh, less than one cent basically. I mean, but aren't they incredibly low because there's like a thousand wallets total? There's no one using, there's like 1500 transactions. I'm looking on, at a Dune dashboard. There's like 1,500 transactions total. By the way, I'm putting like the biggest not financial advice, like massive, like NFA, huge stamp going on right now on the YouTube. And uh, if we had some like sound alert thing going off on Spotify and Apple that we can figure out, I'm, pu I'm, I'm putting that I'm putting that in like 10 times because... 100% air yeah. horn sirens, yeah. the whole bit. We need yeah, it yeah, all. Yeah, all of it. Give it the all chain there. launched, yeah. just to put a perspective of where we are in this thing, like the chain launched a couple days ago and a horrible experience almost nothing went right uh but you know that's that's how it goes so it's, it's a little sketchy still there's almost no liquidity in this dex right now i think there's like 100k so buying like 500 of canto or usdc or the native stablecoin note uh you're moving the market i mean it's it's ridiculous but liquidity incentives do start today or tomorrow as oh, that's well, let me say not going to start. That's the schedule. You never know these things do get pushed back. Uh, and so that kind of opens the door for people to actually bridge over money. And so that Dune dashboard you're looking at is the amount of money that's bridged from Ethereum mainnet to Canto. And it's probably on the order now of like maybe four or five million, I would guess. So still, there's almost nobody here because the chain hasn't really officially launched yet. 
it's producing blocks and there are validators in the set, but uh, there are still, there's no apps built on top of this. There's no like real use case. It's essentially just a new chain with an interesting value proposition that is like a testing in production experiment. Uh, so it's really, it's core tenant again, it's just it's free public infrastructure. So there's like no official foundation, uh, no pre-sale, no vesting contracts to investors, no venture backers. 13% uh, of the supply went to the core contributors. So essentially the dev team, 2% went to an airdrop to testnet users. And the other 85% is distributed to the community through liquidity incentives. Uh, I think about half of that is over the short term. Uh, so the first six months, and half of that is then over the long term. So it's, it's, I'm not exactly bullish on it, to be honest, in the long term, just because it really revolves around these liquidity emissions. Um, but that's not to say that this base layer of free public infrastructure uh, won't get built on. And it is EVM compatible. So you developers will be able to fork product, uh, protocols on Ethereum over to Canto. Um, and yeah, if you wanted a super bullish case scenario for it, uh, Evmos is a multi-billion dollar market cap. And this is quite similar to that, again, just with the modification of this free public infrastructure. But again, worst case scenario, probably most likely scenario, zero. <laughs> is, there, is there a lock on those tokens for the founders or are they able to farm and compound their uh, their ownership of the tokens? Uh, that's a actually a great point. So there is no lock and they probably, I assume, would be farming. So their staking rewards paid out to uh, stakers with a 21-day unbonding period. Uh, so that's like staking to a validator, similar to how you would in many other proof-of-stake chains uh, built on the Cosmos SDK. So it's delegated proof-of-stake. And yeah, so it's sort of like that looks rare model where it looks like a very fair and distributed uh, token dis distribution, but in reality, the core team will be able to use their tokens to farm these future liquidity incentives. And then they end up taking, so they start with 13% of supply, uh, but they're the ones collecting most of these liquidity mining incentives. And then that 13% can grow quite quickly. The, the main risk, in my opinion, is just making sure there's enough ETH and USDC liquidity to exit Canto and actually get back to Ethereum. If you had, um, is there the exit liquidity there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right, we're moving past Canto. Big non-financial advice, air horns, all that kind of good stuff. Last thing is, um, actually, real quick, how do how do you guys keep track of all of, uh, like when you're degening into Canto and then you're coming at like, do you guys have do you guys have your own like personal spreadsheets going on? You use like Zapper or Zerion. Like I saw Nansen obviously acquired uh, who they acquired like Eight Board or whatever three months ago. They just rolled out their portfolio tracker. How do you guys keep track of all this stuff? I I just spreadsheet it. I'm a spreadsheet warrior. I'm also a spreadsheet warrior, but and mostly because so things like Eight Board, like it's not going to have support for a lot of the DGen activity you take part in. Perfect examples: Canto. That's going to Canto have to actually be something before it gets support. Uh, but Aportboard's great. I use that for all my Ethereum-based transactions. They have Bitcoin integration as well. Uh, and, and Solana integration is pretty good over there too. So Aportboard's great. That's uh, I would definitely recommend that for people looking to kind of keep track of multiple wallets at the same time. Uh, in, they do a great job. So even if you have tokens LP'd in, say, like a Curve Pool or Uniswap Pool, uh, they will actually capture the value of those tokens as well, which is super cool. Last thing I want to touch on here is just the 
regulations in Canada. Uh, there was uh, this guy, Mo Chains, came out, kind of shared a screenshot that went viral of uh, uh, new Canadian regulations that say you are only allowed to buy as much. Uh, you're allowed to buy as much Bitcoin, ETH, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash as you want, but any other crypto has a limit of thirty thousand uh, dollars, thirty thousand dollars net buy per year. Our director of research, Rashid, shared something on Twitter that made it look. I think it makes a. I think it's a little different than that. Actually, it's uh, it's per platform. So on on different centralized exchanges, uh, I think the real regulations say that if you're an accredited investor, there's no limit if i'm reading this correctly there's no limit if you're an accredited investor quote unquote eligible investors can do up to a hundred thousand and then all under all other investors are thirty thousand dollars and those numbers are per platform is what it looks like rashid said um any takes on this one i mean this one just seems ridiculous in my mind but i'm curious if you guys have a different take totally agree yeah go ahead sam it seems like just a nothing burger. I mean, you can use another exchange. It's not based in Canada and, and not regulated in Canada and completely get around it. Like Rashid was saying that he uses Kraken and he has no limitations. Um, so, yeah, it seems like a lot more talk and like FUD on Twitter than actual material regulation. Um, but, yeah, that's just my take on it. Yeah, would have to agree. Anything else, guys? Anything we're missing for this week's roundup? Uh, that's pretty solid. Well, I got to give a shout out to Byron here, though. He had a great quote on the Canada thing this morning, and I, I think it probably is the biggest takeaway from this because it is just a silly rule uh, in general. But he mentioned that. So essentially, these rules were designed to like ensure that like investor protection, right? If you're only, you only let them buy a certain amount of uh these tokens, if they know, uh, right, if they're knowledgeable around crypto and Brian had the great point that it's pretty funny. The people who think that Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin should be eligible for unlimited purchases are also the same people telling you that you need to know more about crypto before you invest in it. I just don't understand that. You know, it's 2022 and there's a lot of people that know a lot about crypto and Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash still get like get put in this blue chip conversation. It's, it's just pretty funny to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> it reminds me of um who was it i think the fed or i forget who it was but one of the big um one of the big uh institutions government institutions said anyone making policy on crypto is not allowed to hold crypto i'm like how in the world are you going to understand what what ave and uniswap do if you've never used the platform so anyways that's it for this week's roundup dan sam appreciate you guys coming on hope you guys enjoyed if you guys uh, aren't subscribed already hit subscribe on apple and spotify hit the subscribe on youtube all right see you next week everyone